Well, thank you, friends, for your tuning in to another episode of The Conversation. Today, I have a special guest, or my special guest is David Bailey, who is a public theologian and culture maker who believes the church should lead by example and effective cross-cultural engagement and practices in racial reconciliation. He is the founder and executive director of Erebon, an organization that builds reconciling communities in the midst of a digital, diverse, and divided world. He is also the co-author of Race Class in the Kingdom of God, a study series, and the executive producer of a documentary, 11 a.m., Hope for America's Most Segregated Hour, and the Urban Doxology Project. He lives and is rooted in the East End, which I'm guessing is Richmond. Is that true, David? Yeah, Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. Richmond, Virginia. And he serves on the preaching team there, and he is married to his wife, Joy. So, David, thank you so much for taking the time. I should say a few quick things for uh, to the friends listening. How do I know David Bay? This is the first time we've talked, so I'm, I'm honored to meet him and to be able to speak with him. And I, I met him via the Internet, where everybody meets people these days, um, <laughs> when he was having a conversation with a pastor that I know, John Tyson in New York City. So, but David, um, so maybe just to, so people um, can know who you are, maybe just give us, I don't know, you can give the elevator speech and more. What is Erebon and what was it created to do? So the word Erebon, it means a foretaste of the uh, of what's to come. And so the way it's used in the, in the New Testament, it's a Greek word that means a foretaste, uh, like it's used that the Holy Spirit was given to the church as a foretaste of the kingdom of God that's to come. Well, the world doesn't get the Holy Spirit. What the world gets is the church. And so the, in many ways, like we're a tribe before you buy heaven policy, right? And so uh, what Arabon does is we uh, equip the church to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God to come through being reconciling communities. Um, we actually don't use the phrase that we do the work of racial reconciliation. Uh, we actually, what we do is we're actually trying to just help Christians to actually engage in the work of reconciliation. But then we do have a particular grace in areas of race, class, and culture. Okay. But it's almost like, you know, th- th- that might say, well, don't you do racial reconciliation? Well, you, you could, a lot of times we don't have this kind of like formational disposition towards practicing reconciliation. Like if I, like in one conversation, you and I could do work on racial reconciliation, but then we talk about something else and we kill each other on, you know? And so right, it's like, we got right. to be Christians the whole time, no matter what topic right. we're talking about. Right. So, um, so I think that's, that's one thing. And then, and, and kind of why, like the world is more digital than ever, ever, it's ever been before. It's more diverse than it's ever been before. And because of those, that digital and diversity, uh, we're more divided and polarized than ever before. So right. what we do is we provide Christian leaders in their communities with the tools to become reconciling communities. Okay. So so since, since since I don't know you well, but I mean our listeners do, how has your story, you know, the David Bailey story, um, led you to this union? How did you find yourself doing this kind of work? I have to say, like, I, uh, I didn't really choose the work. The work chose me. It started off mm-hmm. with my parents. Um, you know, my dad... Uh, came to faith. I mean, in one sense, like, you know, Southern black people are always Baptocostal, you know, like, you know, yeah, so, okay. <laughs> you know, like even the atheists got a little bit yeah. of Baptocostal in them, you know. Uh, but uh, he really came to like a follower of Jesus uh, through the 700 Club and um, and then really took the faith seriously. Like, and um, we lived in the suburb where kind of like a lot of working class 
my dad grew up urban poor, but came through the military, uh, went to college, and we moved like right where uh, minorities would live when they are like leaving the city. So I'm an mm-hmm. ethnic racial minority when I'm in the suburbs, but I always went to church in the urban inner city amongst like poor black black folks, really. And so um, I'm an ethnic like we were saying like racially, but I'm an economic minority and mm. kind of with kind of more power. Right. And as a kid, you don't really think about that stuff, but I learned how to navigate in and out of different socioeconomic spaces and racial and ethnic spaces. Um, at eight, I started playing music and mm. uh, I started learning piano. I became a church piano player, play around 11 at 14. I started to, um, uh, play gigs and I opened up a different world. And then another thing that happened when I was eight, I, I was really slow at learning how to read. And my dad said, you know what? If I get him a second grade level reading Bible, have him read Proverbs and Psalms, mm-hmm. two chapters of Old Testament, New Testament, two chapters of New Testament every single day, maybe the Lord will show him how to read. And so that that developed, uh, like my dad took our discipleship really seriously. And, mm-hmm. um, so you grew up in a Christian home. Yeah, totally grew to home yep. and uh, gave me a love for theology. And when you're we're a music producer, a musician, you're a cultural anthropologist, all of those streams kind of came together. And mm. my wife said, hey, David, you know, you had to know how to, like, bring people together of different differences mm. to create this, like, experience and take them through a journey. You should start writing and teaching about this because people, people, people keep on asking you. And that started in 2008. And we've been doing Arabon mm. ever since. And, w- and when you started Arabon 2008, what were you doing? You know, what was your previous job? I mean, I was like, I mean, I was just doing the musician life. I mean, I was. Oh, you were a musician. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was producing music. I was being a music director. I was teaching mm-hmm. music. Like, I mean, I did all the things to make a living as a musician. And yeah. uh, and I realized that like a lot of those, anth- like those are natural anthropological skills when you're a professional musician. I realized most pastors don't think that way. Most ministry leaders don't think that way. They think, yeah. oh, I'm just going to preach the word. But you, you know, I could never go to a, a a country club gig and then be at a black Pentecostal church and think I'm just going to play music. You got to you mm-hmm. got to connect to these different cultures and audiences. Right. And so that I was like, oh, let me, you know, and I'm a big reader. And so I was like, Hey, let's take these concepts and give these to to pastors and ministry leaders, and that's how we got started. Mm. But it sounds like what you're saying is, growing up, you went to a black church, but a largely white school. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was definitely the part of town where it was more mixed. Uh, it was more racially mixed. I may have been like forty percent okay. um, diverse, and it was like okay. English as a second language in my high school, but it was still majority wow. white. Yeah. Okay. So I, I just like, I mean, like it was so many things. I mean, I went to Virginia Commonwealth University. VCU was in Richmond. It was one at the time, one of the most diverse schools, uh, but it still was majority white. And it just, it just gave me tools to cross cultures. Yeah. So I wonder, I mean, I think when you mentioned 2008, in some ways that seems like an eternity. In other words, what's happened in right. the world. So you've been doing, you didn't just start this organization, you know, in the last four months. But when you think about the racial tensions, so maybe it's a personal question, but we're all probably interested in this, but I'd love to know your point of view. When you think about the racial tens- tensions and the protests that have happened over the last two, three, four months, in your opinion, is this a you know repeat? You know, is this a repeat of what's happened you know, over the last couple decades, even, even a repeat of the 1960s? Or is this progress 
you know, how would you, how do you read what's happening right now? That's a really great question. I mean, so again, we started in 2008. Um, I had a friend of mine that's in the advertising business and he said, hey, David, you know, we was just having a hard time getting traction um, because people were like, oh, that's cute that what you're doing. Uh, you know, we got a black president and like racism is a problem in our church, you know? And so a friend of mine said, hey, David, some um, products are like, vitamins and other ones are like painkillers and right now you got a vitamin service slash product that people are like if they're really committed to this work then they feel like they need it but you know painkillers folks are like i gotta have it and so that is one shift that's happened right like in yeah. 2008 we had a black president and folks felt like oh you know uh we you know we're in a post-racial society I think right. things started shifting around 2013, 14 with Trayvon Martin. And it's just the heat's been going up, 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 up and more. I would say in 2015, I did a um, TED, TED talk about um, monuments, you know, and creating cultural artifacts. And uh, in 2015, I would, if you would have asked me up until the time I saw these monuments come down this week in Richmond, Virginia, <laughs> like, I mean, not right. this week, but last month, I was like, there's no way in the world these monuments would ever, ever go down. I mean, that's just like, right. you know, I'm not a betting man, but I would I would have never bet that that would have happened, you know? Right. And, um, but it did, you know? And so I think, I think the climate has changed a lot. I, I've noticed a significant difference. Um, the, I think the moral consciousness of our country has changed. I think in a, in a moment that's kind of, I, I read a lot of history. It feels like 1968, like in all of the, like I think 2020 is going to be a time historians are going to like look at when mm. America shifted. Um, okay. What is it shifted to? I don't quite know, but I, I think right. things have definitely been different in the last 12 years I've been doing ministry. Yeah. So when I think about the work that you do, as you, as you just described, you know, it certainly includes racial reconciliation, but it's bigger. It's about reconciliation. And, and I think our country and our church is, um, you know, our country is very divided. No question about that. And um, but when you think about the difference between, you know, what should the, what is the culture doing and what can the culture do? You know, whether this leads to policy changes or other um, structural changes and what the church could and should do, um, how should the church's response be different? In other words, I don't know what you're saying, but, you know, should should the church just join the bandwagon or is the church supposed to be doing something different? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to always challenge folks that like, hey, you know, if you're a liberal Christian, if you're a conservative Christian, if you're a progressive Christian, however you consider categorize yourself, you know, I'm not going to challenge you to be more liberal or more conservative or more progressive. I'm just going to challenge you to be more Christian. Like, like whatever, however you categorize the thing, you should be different than the, than your secular counterparts. And, right. and none of us have a corner on truth. And so we need to be open to, to what God is saying, interrogate our own biases. And like, I mean, just like, for example, with you, I, I can point out a sin in you, but God says, hey, David, before you get the, plank, uh, the um, speck out of that brother's eye, right. do some self-examination, get the plank out of your own eye. Uh, right. um, I, I can call out sin in your life, but I need to pay attention to the weaknesses in mine. And so I think that's a very distinctly Christian. Like, I think we should always be distinct and different in that way. 
It's, yeah. it's not a question of personal holiness or justice. It's both. And you can't have yeah. justice and not be social, you know? So like this, like against social justice, I mean, it's just such a ridiculous notion. I mean, like the word itself, justice can't be justice without it being social. And so, yeah. but you can't get engaged in like justice without righteousness and personal piety. Those words are so interchangeable throughout scripture. Right. So I, I do think we should have a, a distinct um, difference and not get caught up in being partisan because if, if you're a biblical Christian, you can't be comfortable in, if you're like truly a biblical Christian, not a partisan Christian that's finding your like proof text. Like right. if you're if you're a biblical Christian, you, there's no way that you can stay within one particular party. If that's true, you can, then the kingdom of God is coming not through Jesus and his church. It's actually coming through your political party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, that, and that's... Right. That ain't in the word, you know, and so yeah. so that that says like, hey, something's not right, and we need to figure out what's not right and, and what is right. Well, you know, I, I have um, been playing catch up to you. I mean, in other words, people who are no more um, over the last many months, and maybe even more than that. Um, but when I, you know, even when I'm talking about something like, um, I've heard people say that what happened in the 1960s, they some people even called it Reconstruction too. I mean, that's what I've heard people say that. So that that a lot of the the um, the proposed legislation, even not that we're so much talking about legislation, but a lot of these things were were you know were the same thing that were proposed a hundred years before, and maybe some of those things are being talked about. And I I just wonder. This is just my own observation. Is it because maybe there are um, advances that are made, and then you know advance retreat, advance retreat, advance retreat, maybe, but in a sense, what um, you know what what the what the policies whether of, of you know reconstruction or 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 um, you know MLK and his great work or whoever you know uh, modern day politicians you know they're they're not necessarily legislating the heart you know in other words yeah. how it, there's only so much you can do that that that's what I'm thinking in the sense of um, unless the human unless my heart's changed I don't know how I would I would be better at um, the work of reconciliation, whether it's racial or otherwise. You know? Yeah. And I think, and maybe a way of thinking about this is that the issue of race, um, there's like three different types of racism, right? So, I'm sorry, four types of racism. Uh, one is personal. It's that like, Hey, I think this way about these particular people. And um, that was socially acceptable 50 years ago in ways it's not socially acceptable. Now there's another aspect of racism that is, um, institutional it means that there are laws and policies in place and so really right. what changed in 1968 that said that hey you can't overtly put down on the books laws and policies that discriminate against a particular race or ethnicity um, I think as you learn more you realize that there are um, from Republicans and Democrats who have since 1968 created laws that disproportionately affect black and brown and poor people and immigrant communities, I mean, it's particularly targeted. And so that those are, uh, and the Bible speaks to that. It speaks about, mm. you know, laws that go towards uh, um, the poor and the vulnerable and, and, right. and, and laws should be just, you know. Um, right. When you particularly put laws and policies in place, they create culture. So since we've like started having cars and driving, we drive on the right side of the road. We're culturally accustomed to driving on the right side of the road. If today they make a law and we hear about it, 
uh, on Twitter. And within 24 hours, we have to start writing on the left side of the road. It's going to take generations before that culture changes. And so that another form mm. of, of racism is cultural. And so you can have personal, you can have institution, you can have cultural, and all three of those things, what people call like systemic racism. It's the ecology that's happened like within our country. And so, so yes, there's aspects of the human heart that's really important to do that you can't legislate. Like laws matter, culture shaping matters, and particularly like storytelling matters. And so there's some stories that we've told that we believe that are like culturally racist or biased that um, we need to allow, like, like what the Bible says is, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Right. There's always something that we need to have our mind renewed as the people of God. Right. And mm-hmm. so that that's the thing that I think as believers, and you know, America's been institutionally, legally racist more, like for almost three, for almost three hundred, let's just say three hundred fifty years. Only 50 years saying, like, hey, we're going to try not to be this way. <laughs> so, right. so there's a lot of cultural and institutional and personal stuff that's messed up. You know? So maybe in that, may, maybe in that way, in, in, the, in the read that you just gave of, of, of American history um, and, the, you know, the example of driving on the, the wrong side of the road or a new side of the road, maybe there is progress being made in today. It's hard to know. You know what I mean? What's happening in, in 2020, as you say. But you know, it's not going to be the kind of progress that's. It's like flipping a switch. You know, it's yeah. It's yeah. It, it takes time. You know, it's like we, in some ways, you're like, man, I wish we were further along over the last fifty years. Mm-hmm. But then also, you got to think about like, you're talking centuries, and we're only decades in the corrective matter, right? So in some mm-hmm. ways, it's going to take longer. And you know, what, sometimes you get these questions at a party, it's like, hey, what uh, if you got a chance to go into a time machine? Um, right. where would you want to go? And I'm like, my question is always, am I black or not? Like, if I'm black, like, you know, 2020 is pretty good, you know? <laughs> but like, yeah, right. you know, but it doesn't mean that everything's right in 2020 and I'm not wrong for saying like, hey, we could do better, you know? Well, you know, one thing I heard you say, I never thought about it in your conversation with uh, John Tyson, briefly, you just mentioned um, South Africa. And what I thought I heard you say was that um, even though South Africa... Um, you know, is we often think of that as a, 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 a hotbed or, or, or a hot spot for black and white racial tension. Your point was they're actually behind us, right? I think that's what yeah. you were saying. So, so there, I don't, I, I, I don't know enough about South Africa, contemporary South Africa, but I wonder um, where they are. If, if they're, you know, back in the uh, 1920s, you know, in America, I don't know, but it's a, it's a good point. I mean, it's kind of like, it's, it's a little, it's interesting. So like what happened, that was different. I think it's it's ahead in some ways and then newer. So two things happened. I mean, uh, apartheid was broken. Mandela was released in the 90s. So you're talking, you know, 20 something, almost 25 years or so. Um, so that is newer versus being, you know, uh, 50-ish years, you know, for for United States. But one thing they did, we just changed the laws. What they did, Desmond Tutu led them through a a, a a Christian spiritual experience of truth and reconciliation, which mm-hmm. our approach was to be colorblind, to say like, hey, mm-hmm. now that we change laws, everything should be fine. Let's not like, let, let's be colorblind. And when you're colorblind, you become culture blind, you become power blind. Mm-hmm. But when you do truth and re- reconciliation, 
you have to like look folks in the eye and confess and ask for forgiveness and and, and kind of mm-hmm. name what was wrong. And we ignored what was wrong. And so we didn't do the spiritual work that's needed. That's I that's see. a really uh, significant challenge. And so, you know, I think in some ways they've advanced. I think in other ways they're they're 20, 25, almost 30 years into mm-hmm. uh, trying to make progress. Mm. That's interesting, though. I didn't know that. I mean, I know, of course, who Desmond Tutu is, and but I didn't know that particular role. And it may speak to what we were saying before, which is what, well, there's, what is the role of the church? First, among its own, right? We just we, we need to reconcile within our churches and across churches. But maybe, I don't know, I don't know if America would ever be um, teed up for this kind of thing. Most people think of um, pastors involved in the larger culture, it's it's more of a negative, you know, kind of political, far right thing. But but I, but if there was ever a p- place, if we had the courage and the leadership to do come of that work, that might be very interesting, um, and might maybe be very helpful. Yeah, I, I would highly recommend checking out um, the book Unsettling Truths, Unsettling Truth by uh, Mark Charles and Chung Chan Ra, because uh, Mark has really been trying to lead a national conversation to have. He's a he's a um a Navajo from Navajo tribe native guy. And sure. um he actually ran for president and you know he's just been trying to bring this to to uh, to the attention, you know. Um and I think that book is really great. They talk about narrative change and and they mm, kinda sure. come through some of the distorted theology that's that's shaped that's kind of got us into this problem that we're in. I, I I just ordered a book recently, The Christian Imagination, guy named oh, Jennings. Oh man, Dr. Willie Jennings. I had the great fortune of spending a week studying that book with him. It's it's, it's not really great stuff. It's not an easy read. You know, yeah. it's very it's a PhD, Yale mm-hmm. published book, you know. Mm-hmm. Um but I highly recommend it. Um it would really get into some stuff. And I would actually say that um Sun Chan Ra was one of uh, Dr. Jennings' um, students, and so one of their chapters, maybe the chapter two or three in Unsettling Truths, they actually um, digest that book in ways that okay. are a little Good. bit more like popular. So, speaking of books, you teed me up for my next question. Um, this probably sounds so, you know, almost cliche coming from a white guy. I mean, in the midst of all this. But I, I recently read, you know, D'Angelo's book, which I know everybody and their brother has read, and also read um, Coates' book, you know, his um, Between the World and Me. And here's just one thing I learned, and, and maybe I'm embarrassed to say I learned it. It's all good. Um, but, what, but what he said is that, or what they're saying is that white supremacy, okay, um, which I, I immediately think of as some extreme fringe, you know, um, David Duke kind of thing. Yeah. But what they're saying in these books is that white supremacy is is not that. That's that's a narrow definition. White supremacy is, is structural and it's unconscious for most whites. It's some of what you were just saying a minute ago. And, um, you know, that is to say whether it has to do with um, the, 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 the leftover work of once you change a law, the culture stands in the way the things that you're saying, whether it has to do with, you know, um, you know, um, what's keeping the inner cities, um, you know, poor, whether it has to do with property taxes or education access, things like that. So I know that's not a new idea to you, but I, but that being said, assuming you, you know, you, you would amen this understanding of a larger understanding of white supremacy. Um, what does it suggest about 
a strategy forward. In other words, maybe you've already said this, but if it's that, um, you know, unconscious, in other words, mm-hmm. if most people, even good meaning church going people, not, not crazy people, but good, no good uh, meaning church going people who say, I want to be a part of the solution, David, who um, are not even seeing what I guess we would call, whether it's structural racism or, or even, even, you know, what's Coates says in his book. And again, this is perhaps um not new to you, but the idea that race itself is a construct, you know, so I don't know. Just wonder what your thoughts are about what, if this is all true, what does this mean for the solution? Yeah. So let me just back up a little bit because, you know, if you're like, particularly if you're like a, a, a Bible believing, theologically conservative Christian, a lot of these circles um, have kind of, um, kind of made, critical theory or white supremacy, white fragility, critical race theory have like kind of put that as a cancel word or Marxism, like all of that kind of stuff. So so that that becomes like, you now have put a term in play that tends to be a cancel word, you know? And, and, and one of the things that's really important to understand, like as Christians, we can't buy in a cancel culture. All people are made in the image of God and have some gift to bring to the table and all people are fallen and, and therefore have some level of limitation that they're bringing to the table. And so I just think it's just important that we don't cancel anybody, but we, we, we kind of honor people as the gifts and limitations that God has given. And that includes ourselves, right? We have gifts right. and we have limitations. So one of the things, just to kind of back up, Robin D'Angelo, like, like in sociology and social science and critical theory, what they're trying to do is say like, hey, something is wrong in our society. Like, it's not just people just wake up and have bad days. Like, there's something that is a pattern that has to be recognized. And let me try to figure that out. Now, when you're doing social science, the answer can't be, quote, unquote, God, you know, because that's what theology is. So you got to look at, you got to observe what's going on in society and try to make sense of it. And there's consistent aspects of oppression that's going on. And they're like, hmm. Are people being oppressed because they're short? Oh, no. Are people being oppressed because they're women? Maybe. Are people being oppressed because, you know, they're of a race or of ethnicity? Yeah. So this is called critical race theory. So, like, what is happening in this space? And what's ha- and, and so sometimes people, particularly in conservative circles, they'll say they'll dismiss it because, well, they aren't Christian. or mm-hmm. um, and, and they're talking about oppression and things of that nature. Well, that's not the point of purpose. Like, you know, my math teacher, I don't know if my math teacher was a Christian or not. They just taught me how to do math, you know? And so that was the purpose, right? Like, it wasn't like I wouldn't ask him for theology. And so I find that critical theory, sociology, those type of things are really great for owning. They don't use this language, but the depth of sin. They're willing to own the depths of sin. And so then... We as Christians know a couple of things. We know, one, that there's oppression in the world. The Bible tells us that. We know, two, that the world is very sinful and broken. And so to that level, we agree. So then they began to kind of let us know the details. And and so Robert D'Angelo, I think a way of reading that book is, hey, in a secular society, when you're owning the depth of sin, she doesn't use that language, but she names a particular sin of racism and she names this that that it's actually um, called white supremacy, and she's like, "Hey, what are formational habits that we can engage in mm. to 
go through a process of sanctification. Like that, that's in essence like what's happening in that book. She that's she right. thinks that redemption is possible, but you know, she just can't be like, Well, Jesus, you know, like that's not right, that's not her job, right? right? So she so she has helpful tools. And as we know as Christians, you can't just do these things in your own strength. You actually do need Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. But I actually find mm-hmm. her to be really helpful. Coates, on the other hand, he owns the death of sin. Yeah. You know, he he challenges like the the uh, King says the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And he's like, man, I'm in the long part. I don't see it bending towards justice. Right. He is an atheist. It's my sense. Yeah. Based off mm-hmm. of the, yeah. Based off of the ethics that he's seen from Christians. So mm-hmm. like, why, like, you know, he, he talked about what marks, uh, um, you know, what marks a ghetto is, is uh, liquor stores, hair shops and churches, you know? And so, you know, so, so for him, the Christians that he's engaged with, the things that he's seeing in society, we haven't given great answers to him. I, I wish, I wish me and maybe John Tyson were in great conversations with him, right? Like, like I feel like he might get like, okay, y'all are some Christians that are a little more thoughtful in this topic. Hopefully right. that would bring some stuff, but that hasn't happened in his particular space by the time re- writing that book. And yeah. so because he doesn't have a Christian worldview, it's not bending towards resurrection and new life and sin and death and those type of things. On the Christian circle, where we believe in transformation, the word of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, grace, we aren't, the Bible tells us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And many of us, our theology is so small that we're really afraid to read books like White Fragility and Mm -hmm. Between the World and Me because Mm -hmm. our understanding of Jesus isn't big enough. We We don't know how Jesus can, has been a part of the redemption and restoration and reconciliation of all things, including that was written in that book. And so I I just had to kind of like build some bridges to actually talk about what you're talking about with white supremacy. Uh, You know, when I, when I went to seminary, um, uh, at least I was told, and you, you need to exegete scripture and exegete culture and bring them together. So, I mean, it's easier said than done. And, And I think a lot of pastors, Perhaps you know, um, you know, just do the one, you know. But yeah. I, I do, think, yeah. I think we're called to do both. So um, as we're, it, you know, oh, go can ahead. I just ask the? I just want to ask you a white supremacy thing uh, question. And this is the deal. I think ultimately, this is Arabon, kind of how we are serving folks and just shepherding people through this. We see white supremacy as a spiritual principality manifested economically legislated politically, it affects us all relationally. Hmm. It's a spiritual principality manifested economically, legislated politically, affects us all relationally. So Robin D'Angelo and Tiny C. Coates, they say, hey, this is bigger than a relationship. This is even bigger than policy. This is really about economics. And these things, the, the way, you know, um, in, in Christian theology, we have a kingdom of God, but then we also have the empire, Egypt, Rome, Babylon, you know, Syria, Persia, mm-hmm. Rome, you know, and, and from Genesis all the way Revelation. And most Christians have a theology of kingdom in America, but don't have a theology of empire. So mm-hmm. we oftentimes will call America a Christian nation, where right. really America looks more like Rome than it does the kingdom of God. Right. And so then we don't want to, when we critique America, it feels like we're critiquing God. In the kingdom mm-hmm. of God, and we can't see certain things, 
and we can't see how this principality has been at work. And so this principality, like this is the thing where actually being Christian is very helpful because we're not going to outsmart this principality. Some things come out through fasting and prayer and, and, and naming things and, 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 and allowing the renewing of the mind and, and all of these type of things that it's the kingdom of God. So another way of reading Rome, Romans 12 and 2 says, instead of don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can discern God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. The way you can say that is, is don't be don't be conformed to the logic of empire, but be transformed by the kingdom mindset. So mm-hmm. then that way you can discern God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so right. that that is that's what we're trying to like pastor and shepherd people that come through the airbomb ministry to be able mm-hmm. to do. So on that point, let's let's focus our what we have left on exactly where you just said, Airbond. So I know we're not going to get this all done in a call, and I hope we can talk more and we will. But you know, for for friends listening to this, you know, and even here at this church, you know, what are the basic strategies? Um, you know, you know, obviously you take every individual uniquely, every church uniquely, but um, based upon the little I told you, you know, what what, what what's the about this particular church or churches like this one, what are the what are some of the basic strategies or 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 directions that you you guys uh, help people do? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a, f- a few fold. I mean, like one of it is that every community may like being a diverse community isn't necessarily the answer. Uh, um, every mm-hmm. diverse community isn't necessarily a reconciling community, mm-hmm. and so. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why you may or may not be a diverse community. Like our cities are playing certain ways to not have diversity, to to right. to have to to kind of segregate the socioeconomic space, which oftentimes implicates the the uh, racialized space. And those things, you know, you, you can read the book of The Color of Law to kind of understand how all of that stuff works out. Yes. So every Christian community ought to be a reconciling community. So the thing is. Wherever you are in your place of influence, ask, hey, how can I bring a foretaste of the kingdom of God and be in a reconciling community? That's that's what we're trying to do. Like, So with your church, that's the question that we're going to ask. In Rochester, where y'all located, it might be another five, three, five, or ten years if you – I don't even know if being a reconciling community – I mean, a diverse community is possible. But being a reconciling right. community, y'all can start that orientation like – next week over the next year over the next 10 years and see what mm-hmm. god does okay your business leaders your people that's in your home the type of stories that you tell the things that you learn the people groups that you engage with you can ask that question and like lean into these things educate yourself uh but then begin to say hey you know what can we do what are one one to three things that we can do to move right. towards being a reconciling community and and i think you know, we always encourage people to partner with Airbon, learn about Airbon resources, support our work. I, I found that some of the biggest conversion has happened with people who have supported us over the years. As you know, as, mm-hmm. as they've been learning more about the ministry, like Jesus says it: where your heart is, I mean, where your treasure is, your heart's there also. And so, like engaging in this type of um, work will help you to become more of a reconciling community, mm-hmm. and, and and God will give you insights about what you can do to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God that's to come in your community. I wonder, you know, this may be super simplistic as I was thinking about my own context, but do you encourage people, maybe this is, maybe this should, shouldn't even have to be said, but in a church, start with 
the people, you know, when, if, if we're talking about black, white, start with the, um, the black folk in your church and, you know, and spend a little more time with them, you know, listen, I mean, I mean, maybe this is just so obvious you don't even mention it, but sometimes I, 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 I wonder if we, we jump to stage two, which is we're going to make a proclamation. We're going to make a statement. We're going to, yeah. we're going to with the church in the city. And I'm thinking, what if I was a person of color sitting here going, what about me? Right. You know, right. I'm, yeah. And I think so. And I think, and the one thing I, I want to encourage you to do is not to burden people of color who don't do this type of work right. to educate you on race. Like that's one thing, like the Arab ministry, like this is what I do, you know, like this guy's giving me a grace in this area, but every person of color, they, they, they might be, they're definitely an expert in their experience, their experience, you know, uh, in their life, but they might not be an expert on race, you know, and that's a very different type of thing. And so, one of the things that I would encourage folks to do is like, hey, if you're reading a book, like, like first of all, just do some education on your own. If you, if book reader, right. read doc, watch documentaries, read books, do right. some education on your own. And it's one thing if 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 you're like a random black person in your church, and you go up to them and say like, hey, can you teach me about race? It's another thing. It's just like, hey, um, I realize I have a lot of poverty in my relationship. I actually would love to see. Can we just have a rhythm of being friends in general? Um, and maybe try to find something common that we could do, whether it's play golf or whether it's, you know, um, you know, you know, play cards or whatever the case may be spades. Like, can we do a rhythm? That's one thing. It's a different type of invitation. It's not a selfish invitation. It's like, but then it's also like, Hey, I'm reading a lot of stuff and, and doing some documentary. I'm actually doing some work on my own as we build friendship. Do you mind if like, I don't want to make our friendship all about this, but is it okay If if like we bounce some about some things off that I'm reading with you from you and just get your opinion, not that you're representing your whole race, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think that's a little bit safer way to not have a, um, a one sided relationship, particularly on a very sensitive topic of this nature. And also know that you're going to make mistakes like there's no like if you come into the situation being like, I'm on a not, not make a mistake then you're going to, I mean, that's not going to be a good situation, but, um, but yeah, doing this would be helpful. Well, David, thank you so much for the time. And I, I know we're going to talk, or I want to talk more offline and talk more about Arabon, but thank you for giving me the time, giving us the time, sharing some of your wisdom. And uh, thank you friends for joining us for another uh, episode of the conversation. And, and I look forward to um, having more of them very soon. Thank you for being with us. Thanks, David. Thank you.